for a hundred years, we've been trying to avoid a national health insurance. We keep taking the path of what one of the historians calls more palatable approaches, and all of them have failed. So I think it's time for us to stop that strategy and just say, we need a national health insurance. She encountered high water and pulled over off the freeway with her three-year-old daughter. And uh, apparently, uh, she got out to, to wave the water and the water swept her away. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, your show for voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, here with a jam-packed show because so much is happening here in Washington, D.C. Congress came back into session this week, and along with relief to victims of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, taxes, the budget, and DACA, the issue of the nation's health care system is still unresolved. And as Senator Bernie Sanders prepares to introduce his anticipated Medicare for All bill on September 13th, we'll speak to a leading health care advocate, Dr. Margaret Flowers. Also later in the show, the ugly face of disaster capitalism is showing itself in Houston, Texas. In the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, we'll hear from those in Houston on the ground about what the television cameras are not showing us. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. One day after Trump rescinded the executive order on DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, a coalition led by Latinx organization Mejente rallied Wednesday in D.C. in front of the Department of Justice, where they erected and then tore down a makeshift statue of Attorney General Jeff Sessions, calling Sessions a living monument to the Confederacy and white supremacy. Sessions made the announcement about rescinding the executive order, which was denounced by Republicans and Democrats as cruel to young people who were brought to the U.S. by their parents. Several people, including those threatened with deportation, made impassioned remarks to the chanting crowd, including Miriam Lopez, who traveled from Georgia with the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights. We drove 14 hours to get here, and what is in my mind, it's my mom when I left my house, and she said, take your book back, and take my hope and my dreams like I took you 17 years ago with your sisters. I graduated from Forsyth County High School, one of the most racist counties in this country. And today I'm here, I'm a DACA recipient, but I'm here to give you a message. Don't forget our parents, because we're here for them. And today we're here for DACA, but we're here to stop deportations. And we are here for an inclusive immigration bill. And we're here to tell Jeff Sessions that you're a walking monument and we're, and like we're taking you down in the south, we're gonna take you down. And for Trump, all we feel for you is pity. We cannot ask you to understand what we go through with our parents because you lack, what you lack is love 
and what you like as a family to support you. Thank you for coming today, and thank you, Glar, for bringing us here. Thank you, mi gente, and thank you, everybody, for being here. Trump's decision to end DACA in six months will directly impact the ability of 800,000 young people to work and go to school and indirectly impact millions more of their family members. Fifteen states in the District of Columbia are suing the Trump administration over his decision to end the program. Wednesday also marked the end of the 118-mile march from Charlottesville, Virginia to D.C. to confront white supremacy. The march started August 28th in the aftermath of the violent protests by white supremacists against a local Charlottesville decision to take down a monument honoring Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Because President Trump still blames both sides for the terror inflicted by the white supremacist groups, protesters said that they were calling for his removal as well as the removal of any elected official who emboldens or supports white supremacist views or policies. Mohammed Naim, an organizer for the march, told those rallying near the Martin Luther King Memorial here in D.C. that the action was in the tradition of King. White supremacy! in all its violence and lack of ideal, revels in the tradition of Confederate sovereignty, bound by an allegiance to racism and a senseless fear of equitable coexistence. Yet here we are, still fighting for a dream, the script of history continuing to lead us towards a more loving America. The march was supported by a coalition of groups including Color of Change, the Movement for Black Lives, the Women's March, United We Dream, Repairers of the Breach, and many more. After Wednesday's rally, the Charlottesville to D.C. marches set up a permanent vigil in Farragut Square in Northwest D.C., where they are joined by the Rising Hearts Native American Organization, which is still working to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. In other racial justice news, the Black Lives Matter Global Network is circulating a petition in support of Seattle Seahawks defensive end Michael Bennett, who was assaulted and threatened with a gun by Las Vegas police last month. Bennett, who has continued the sit-down protest during the national anthem at NFL games, started by quarterback Colin Kaepernick, has retained an attorney to pursue a legal case in the matter. Well, just as Congress is back in session, so are activists, and over the next three weeks, several large gatherings are taking place here in the nation's capital. Thousands are expected to walk in the March for Racial Justice on Saturday, September 30th. On September 16th and 17th, activists are gathering from around the country for the People's Congress of Resistance, convened and endorsed by many organizations and individuals to reject what they call Trump's reactionary program of unrestrained capitalism and to project a platform and vision of what America should be if it is to be a society truly devoted to fundamental social and political rights. Now, before the People's Congress, September 11th to the 16th, there will be the third days of action against the blockades to raise awareness about the impact that the U.S. blockade is having on the health of the Cuban people, as well as people in the U.S. who are denied access to advancements that Cuba has made in the health field. And finally, September 8th through Sunday, September 10th, the Progressive Independent Party, Socialist Alternative, and Movement to Draft Bernie Sanders for a People's Party will hold the People's Convergence, featuring Cornell West and Kashama Sawant, addressing Medicare for All, a $15 minimum wage, and more. 
organizer Nick Brenner said that the convergence is not splitting potential Democratic votes, but is rather rallying the 99% that is disaffected from both parties. When we put up corporate Democrats, for example, like Hillary Clinton, what we find is that people don't turn out to vote, even against the most vulgar and, and authoritarian uh, and racist of, of candidates, Donald Trump. People were simply not inspired to turn out to vote for Hillary Clinton, for what someone who represented the epitome of the establishment that they're trying to escape. And so it's mm-hmm. precisely that, that reason that in order to galvanize the turnout and the enthusiasm, the energy that's necessary to defeat the populist right, the only thing that can do that is the populist left, a populist progressive uh, alternative uh, that is unfiltered and, and actually stands for Medicare for all, free public college, reducing inequality dramatically, and all of those issues. The People's Convergence is getting underway September 8th and ending September 10th at American University's Washington College of Law in Northwest D.C. and is online at convergence2017.org. In culture and media, premiering on Netflix is the documentary Strong Island, the stunning directorial debut by Yance Ford about the murder of his brother in 1992. The Netflix release is a deft exploration of the shooting death of a black man, not directly at the hands of police, but as investigated by a virtually all-white law enforcement and criminal justice system in the racially fraught environment of Long Island, New York. Woven throughout Strong Island is also the portrait of a real black middle class family with real stories of Jim Crow in the South and in the North, which keeps the narrative real, honest, and focused on the human ties that bind. On Saturday, September 9th, beginning at 7.30 p.m., there will be a fundraiser at Bloom Bars in Northwest D.C. to support WEAC Radio, a popular online social justice station that was the victim of a burglary and vandalism last month. Since then, more than 400 people have contributed almost $30,000 to get the station up and running. John Chambers, founder of Bloom Bars, told On the Ground about the need to support projects that combine arts and activism. I heard what happened with WEAC Radio, and we wanted to find out a way to, to help. We've gone through something similar um, a couple of years back where our, our place was burglarized and robbed. So we know what it's like to kind of go through this and, and get back on your feet. So we wanted to, we wanted to help out. And finally, the family of Dick Gregory invites the public to Dick Gregory's Celebration of Life, Saturday, September 16th, 4 p.m. at City of Praise Family Ministries in Landover, Maryland. More information at DickGregoryTribute.com. And those are our headlines and happenings. We'll be right back with Gerald Horn. Stay with us. Well, to talk about outside the U.S., I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, this week, 
we heard our ambas- the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, kind of double down on previous threats made by Donald Trump and Defense Secretary James Mattis about ending diplomatic efforts with North Korea. And she said they're begging for war. So let's start with that. What's happening? What's the latest? Well, the latest is that Moscow has become involved. Moscow is part of that neighborhood. It hosted the president of South Korea only recently. Moscow has also reprimanded Washington for its increasingly bellicose rhetoric. It's also positive that the mainstream press, particularly the New York Times, has suggested that China may not be the key to disciplining North Korea as Washington would demand. As a matter of fact, I might add my own point, which is that if Washington were more sophisticated, it would try to make overtures to North Korea in order to gain leverage against China. But apparently that kind of diplomatic strategy is beyond the current level of competence. I haven't noticed any belligerent tweets from Donald Trump lately about the North Korean crisis. He's also backed down with regard to trying to negotiate in the middle of this emergency the trade agreement between South Korea and the United States, which he charges has basically cheated the United States and its employers and workers. So let us be optimistic and hope that this crisis is cooling down. Well, at the same time, uh, you mentioned Putin, and I believe some of his statements were made at the BRICS conference that's being held in China. And that is the conference or meeting of the countries that are a part of this alternative monetary system or movement composed of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And also, I believe China made some statements at the BRICS conference also saying that war on the Korean peninsula was just not acceptable and that they weren't going to accept any kind of war happening right there, as you said, in their neighborhood. So uh, what else came out of the BRICS conference that you think is newsworthy? Well, first of all, back to North Korea, which was a major topic at this BRICS conference in China. The international community is rapidly coming to the conclusion that what's needed to resolve this crisis is a double freeze. That is to say, North Korea would freeze its nuclear development program, and Washington and South Korea and Japan would freeze its belligerent approach to North Korea, which includes these rather intimidating overflights of bomber planes and military maneuvers and all of the rest. As of now, Washington is rejecting the double freeze, but I dare say if this conflict is to be resolved, they may be forced to accept it. Now, with regard to the BRICS, uh, one of the intriguing aspects of the BRICS is not only the fact that they're developing alternatives to the World Bank to finance global development, which in some ways is a subset of China's ambitious One Belt, One Road program, which involves, for example, trains rumbling as we speak from China all the way to Western Europe, and also involves, for example, building railroads from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to Djibouti, and from Nairobi to Mombasa, the two major cities of Kenya, and ultimately building railroads stretching into the heart of Africa. But it's also striking to note that Mexico turned up 
at the BRICS conference with a high-level delegation, I think that that's part of the growing alienation between Mexico and the United States as represented by the unfortunate rhetoric of Donald J. Trump and is also represented by his attempt to deport many immigrants of Mexican origin and his attempt along with his Republican comrades to sabotage the so-called Dreamers program. That is to say, these 800,000 youth who are in the United States through no fault of their own because their parents crossed into the United States without documentation and grew up here, that is to say, the youth, and now there's talk of expelling them in mass, and that's what the Republican Party base is demanding, and it's unclear if their demands will be rejected. But with Mexico turning up at the BRICS meeting and with it developing increasingly deep and profound ties to China, I think that this may be a very important and profound development in the long run. Well, there was also news out of South Africa and this public relations firm being liquidated and somehow this being connected to some work it did in South Africa. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, there's a major British PR firm, Bell Pottinger, which was hired by some business associates of President Jacob Zuma, the Gupta family, uh, which has been accused of state capture. They've been accused of being in a corrupt relationship with Mr. Zuma. And as often happens, this public relations firm was hired to sanitize the image of both Mr. Zuma and the Gupta family. This public relations firm has, in its past history, been involved in many similar scandals, including trying to sanitize the image of Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. But sanitizing the image of a fascist apparently was not necessarily a cause for being driven into liquidation, or to the verge of liquidation, I should say, because what happened is that Bell Pottinger, this PR firm, basically charged that the Guptas and Zuma were under attack because they were challenging, quote, white monopoly capital, unquote, in South Africa. Now, it should not be news to your audience that monopoly capital exists in South Africa that is dominated by the descendants of the European settlers, that, that is to say those defined as white. But apparently it was considered a bridge too far to critique or attack quote, white monopoly capital, and there has been outraged in elite circles, that is to say, so-called white elite circles in South Africa, not to mention their comrades in London, and that has led Bell Pottinger to the brink of liquidation, and I think one of the morals or lessons of this story is that apparently one has to tread carefully when one links race and class through the term white monopoly capital, because I guess that's the third rail of global politics, at least in the North Atlantic community. Well, I suppose that means that corporate PR firms have to tread lightly, but here at Pacifica Radio, we don't have to tread so lightly. I should also say that obviously uh, Mr. Zuma and the Guptas have a case to answer. I'm not necessarily trying to defend the kind of routine corruption that they become enmeshed in. But that should be separated analytically from this attack on this firm, uh, which is being attacked pres presumably, precisely, because they had the gumption to single out, quote, white monopoly capital, unquote. Right, right. Well, 
even so, even so, they uh, we'll hold on to the fact that we do have that freedom here and intend to use it. So I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, author, and activist, Professor Gerald Horn of the University of Houston. I should ask before we finish, uh, how how are things there in Houston? I know we discussed last week, but... Houston is catastrophic. First of all, there are thousands of newly homeless and landlords are taking advantage by expelling tenants who have sound leases from their apartments. Needless to say, the law in Texas tends to benefit landlords over tenants and then Mm. trying to then rent those apartments to the more affluent newly homeless, which is obviously exacerbating the homeless crisis. And then there are all of these stories that we hear about foul air as a result of petrochemical plants being disabled and oil refineries being disabled. It's unclear what's in the water. There have been stories also about the fact that with these thousands of cars being disabled after the flood, that now these cars are getting a new paint job and are being shipped out of state to be sold to the unsuspecting, even though the cars quite literally are rotting from the inside. So be careful if you buy a new car. Basically, what's happening in Houston is savage capitalism and neoliberalism run amok. Wow. Well, you you make sure that you uh, take good care down there in that savage world. <laughs> wow. I've been speaking with uh, our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald, and you take good care. Well, thank you. Oh, 
If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and you just heard Bessie Smith singing Backwater Blues. And now we hear more voices from Houston. Earlier this week, my fellow Pacifica programmer, Werner Avery Brown, spoke to Akua Holt, a radio producer based in Houston, and also Vion Reynolds, who runs a nonprofit there devoted to promoting bicycling and healthy living in the city. Well, now, much has uh, it, been said about the optics being so different from Katrina. You know, we don't see pictures of black families huddled on rooftops with signs saying help. Victims are are not being criminalized and shot for looting. We don't see hundreds of people stopped on a highway being blocked from leaving the city as we did with Katrina. Nobody is saying Trump doesn't like black people, as Kanye West um, said about President Bush. Instead, we see Trump raising up and kissing a little African-American girl on the cheek. Are, are the optics telling a true story or is there perhaps an optical illusion here that we're missing? Dr. Vian, i get your response. Illusion, a total illusion that if you, if you look out into the neighborhoods, one of the things that the people are, the, the cameras are not in the areas where the people are the most hit. And for some reason, in some instances, the cameras couldn't get there because the areas were so hard hit. So the cameras were at the, at the areas where they could, you know, where they could could get to. So particularly out, you know, one of the things that these areas were deserts prior to Harvey coming. And particularly like now you're talking about the, the services. And the 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 uh, people coming in, can you what can you see? Well, these areas were were food deserts initially. There were very little transportation out in and out of these areas. The people didn't have a lot of money prior to Harvey, and so now these people are left with nobody coming because they don't it, they can't scream loud enough uh, for people to hear them. The ones that can scream loud, if you go to you know, Meyerland, those people are connected with city. And so when they talk to people, their voice is heard very rapidly. But these people that have been living in this food desert before Harvey. So you knew they were there prior to then and they were suffering. And so nobody was trying to help them prior to Harvey. And so with Harvey, they were so busy 
that they turn their attention to other areas that, you know, where the, the squeaky wheel gets the noise, uh, gets the, uh, oil. the oil. Mm-hmm. So this, this area had been squeaking, but nobody could hear it. And so now it's, it's really in bad shape, but nobody, you don't see the camera showing that there was no food stores in the area prior to Harvey. And so now so the those little people food starving store that now? was there, Yes. Yes, they are. There's no food. They, they have one hot meal coming out into this area per day. You have to walk in order, you know, elderly people have to walk in order to get to the food. So what these people really need is services to the area. So they need food, you know, uh, they, they need, you know, their refrigerators restocked. So that they can start back with their normal lives, they don't need to to walk, you know, two miles mm-hmm. or five miles to get a one meal for their kids, haul their kids down there to do this, and then haul them back to wait for the next day. So there's no nothing there for them now, and there was, you know, very little there prior to the mm-hmm. storm. Mm-hmm. So. And there's not an organized effort uh, for city services and Red Cross, because we can't leave Red Cross and FEMA out of the equation. I mean, they're here collecting millions of dollars, and you would think as a strategy uh, for folks who, I mean, a million cars were underwater in Houston. Mm -hmm. That's just to give people a scope. And I also want to say that Harvey dumped $15 gallons of water in southeast texas mm-hmm. 15 trillion just to give people an idea of how massive that storm mm-hmm. was uh, mm-hmm. in this area and so the flooding the flooding stretched over a 300 mile radius it hit rockport which is almost 200 miles from here okay. houston got the the rain side they call it the dirty side of the storm mm-hmm. so with regard to this northeast side of town that Dr. V is talking about, one of the things I'm encouraged uh, uh, about that the word has gotten out on social media. We have groups like the National Black United Front and the Nation of Islam. Uh, they have had boots on the ground um, building coalitions with some of the churches and community organizations in that area. I, I went out to that area because I wanted to see for myself, and I found that most of the organized groups that I saw or elderly people, and mm-hmm. perhaps because they're not on social media or they're not savvy in using media, that could be one of the barriers in um, with that area getting the word out about what they need. But I think now that it's been identified, especially online, that the northeast side of Houston is suffering and the people need uh, support, they need diapers and food and whatever, mm-hmm. I saw pictures of some Black Lives Matter, uh, that organization came to Houston from Dallas with three uh, uh, coach buses, uh, three charter buses, full of supplies and full of volunteers, and they were also willing to take 50 people and relocate them back to Dallas. Mm. Those young people, they came here and they were work- they were ready for business. So, from what I understand, they're, they're coming back again this weekend. Okay. And the Shrine of the Black so, Madonna, they've had several mm-hmm. uh, U-Hauls to come to town. So there is a all-out grassroots effort. But when it comes to uh, the the organizations that are designated as disaster relief, 
I, I think that's where the focus should be. Mm-hmm. Where where are the services coming from? Akua, you told me a story about a nurse and yeah. her young toddler. Can yeah, you share really, that yeah. story with us? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, in fact, I reached out to her sister, but they may be uh, uh, getting ready to funeralize her because the area that she lived in, Beaumont, Texas, they've been without water uh, since the flood, which is 75 miles from Houston, and they were underwater as well. Um, yes, this nurse, she had come to Houston and um, to to go to a concert, and she, on her way back to Beaumont, again with the 75 miles, uh, she encountered high water and pulled over off the freeway with her three-year-old daughter. And uh, apparently uh, she got out to, to wave the water and uh, the water swept her away. The currents of this water, they're very, very strong. That's another thing, you know, people don't know. When you wade through that kind of water, it's just not that easy. Um, but anyway, the little girl's name was Jordan Grace, and uh, she was three years old. And the girl, the little girl was quoted as saying that, uh, quote, Mama was saying her prayers as she was drowning. And so she was rescued on a Zodiac uh, boat uh, in Beaumont, and they saw her body floating downstream, and they saw the little baby on top of her, the toddler. And they said right before they were able to rescue her, her body was getting ready to go under a trestle, a train trestle. And the boat would not have been able to rescue her. And then it was going into a bigger body of water. Her name was Antoinette Logan, and she was 38 years old. And again, um, the little girl said, you know, her mom was praying with her before, before she died. And I suppose... A mother told her, look, cling on to my shirt. Don't let go, no matter what happened. So they found her, and they were able to rescue the little girl. Uh, her father was in Austin, Texas at the time, and uh, she has been uh, linked up with her dad. So when you hear these type of stories, it's easy to see how one can be traumatized by um, this event, this experience called Harvey, even though... Your, your own personal home is not hit or damaged to have to witness these kind of events. <clears throat> Dr. McReynolds, how do you recommend people heal emotionally, mentally, and psychologically from such traumatizing? Well, I think one of the things is to realize the type of environment that we're living in today, that the world is not a peaceful place. And so once we realize that, you know, it's not... We, we get rid of the illusion of it's, you know, peaceful and happy that we have some real work to do in order to live in our environment. And one of the things that we're going to have to do is start to work together in our communities and build ourselves toward self-sufficiency mm-hmm. because it's evident that nobody is coming. That was Akua Holt and Vion Reynolds both based in Houston, being interviewed by journalist Verna Avery-Brown earlier this week. When we come back, Medicare for All. Stay with us. Tell her try your best just to make it quick. For my tent to the sick. Cause there must be something she can do. 
came back into session this week, and along with relief to victims of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, taxes, the budget, and DACA, the issue of the nation's health care system is still unresolved. Though an effort to repeal and replace Obamacare was dramatically defeated in July, just before the August recess, the Trump administration is still making moves to further weaken and dismantle the already troubled Affordable Care Act. But on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, there is no unified front to achieve Medicare for all or a single-payer system or agreement about what universal health care really means. Despite overwhelming support from the American people, the corporate leadership and mainstream of the Democratic Party, like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, refused to put Medicare for all in their platform, and Senator Bernie Sanders, whose championing of health care for all won him millions of supporters, is introducing his Medicare for All bill next week that single-payer advocates say will still provide leverage to the private insurance industry. Well, my guest for this segment is a leader among healthcare advocates. Dr. Margaret Flowers is a pediatrician with experience in hospitals and in private practice. She is currently working on single-payer healthcare reform full-time. In addition to her activity as a national board advisor for Physicians for a National Health Program, she is also co-director of the social justice organization Popular Resistance, where she runs the Health Over Profit for Everyone campaign. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Well, thank you for having me, Esther. Well, as national attention was focused on not repealing Obamacare, many healthcare advocates such as yourself were pushing for passage of Medicare for All and the long-standing rift between corporate Democrats and the left was further exposed. Now, Bernie Sanders plans to introduce his Medicare for All bill next Wednesday and has already received backing from Senators Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. And I know you met with uh, Sanders' staff on Thursday. So what is your assessment of the bill? Well, as much of it that that you've seen. Sure. Thank you, Esther. So um, we do have legislation in the House. John Conyers has introduced it every session since 2003. It's called H.R. 676, the Expanded and Improved Medicare for All Act. And we see that as really a gold standard of the system that we'd like to see put in place. We've been pushing Senator Sanders all year to introduce a Senate companion to that, and he agreed to introduce Medicare for All legislation. Uh, we started hearing, you know, through people who were talking to his staff and also in our previous meetings with his staff, that there were some concerns about how strong that that bill would be. And so we met with his staff on Thursday in Congress to kind of go through the bill. They were not able to give us a draft to look at, so we haven't seen the final language. What we're hearing is some reassuring things that um, it will be a Medicare for All system 
ultimately he wants to transition it over a four-year period, um, we would like to see that happen, you know, more quickly than that. You know, what we're finding is that there's still some elements that are going to be in the system like for-profit facilities um, that we're going to need to kind of push to have those taken out of our system. We really, the fundamental struggle that we have had in this country for the last hundred years is whether we should treat healthcare as a commodity so that people can only get as much as they can afford or treat it as a human right, something that everyone needs to have, a public necessity. And so we really feel like it is a public necessity and we shouldn't have that profit incentive involved anywhere in the system. But I think the, the news is good. Senator Sanders is someone who is willing to respond to public pressure, and we're going to have to be continuing throughout this process to be very clear about what we want in our system and, and pressing to make sure that happens. You wrote an article last week in Counterpunch where you said that in his legislation, Senator Sanders is trying to kind of walk the line between his promises made to his constituents around, you know, health care for all. And he's trying to protect his fellow Democrats who receive funding from these very same, you know, corporate health care entities. Do you think that's still the case? I think to some extent it's, it still is the case and it's going to continue to be the case because that's that's the dilemma that, you know, any member of Congress faces if they're trying to put forth, you know, a truly progressive piece of legislation. And, and you know, there was definitely, there was some concern by people when they heard that Kamala Harris was backing it because she's viewed as kind of part of that corporate wing of the Democratic Party. So um, I think we're going to have to make sure, and, and it's going to be the same on the House side and the same as this whole process goes forward, that we as a movement that's fighting for health care for every person in this country have to keep our eyes open and be willing to put pressure on Congress if we feel like things are not going in the best direction. We as a group at you know the Health Over Profit for Everyone campaign wrote a letter to Senator Sanders, and that's what that counterpunch article is based on. Um, because we felt it was important that we make that we be very clear about things that are acceptable and aren't acceptable and that people intervene and contacted Senator Sanders' office before the bill was actually finally drafted uh, to make sure that it could be as strong as possible. Now, I know some of the concerns in that letter, you included them in your article, and one was the inclusion of co-payments and deductibles. And I know that's probably the, the bane of, the existence for most of us who are just patients who have to see a doctor to navigate our way around what what's required of us and and how much care we have to pay for out of pocket before we can get the benefit from our insurance. So talk a little bit about why you all oppose the co-payments and deductibles in a new system that that we hope to get. Sure, thank you. So co-pays, which are the money that people have to pay out of pocket before they can be seen by a health professional, add more kind of administrative complexity to our system. We have to collect those co-pays. So we have to have a system to collect them. And they don't actually provide any benefit to the healthcare system. They serve actually as an obstacle that keeps people from getting care when they need it. And so this has been proven. There have been very good studies looking at how co-pays impact people's access to healthcare. And, and we find over and over again that people delay or avoid healthcare that they actually need. You know, they may 
delay or avoid getting a prescription that they need, and that this can lead to worsening of their conditions, which may make them more expensive to treat down the road, or they may have a worse outcome down the road. So they don't actually provide any benefit to our healthcare system. And, and Senator Sanders was initially uh, planning to include copayments. I think there's been a lot of pushback against that, and it sounds like those are mostly going to be out of this new legislation. Okay. So what are some of the other differences that you see between the John Conyers legislation that you back and and what you've seen so far in the Sanders legislation? Thank you. And so remember that I haven't actually read the Sanders legislation, so we'll have more details hopefully next week. But I think, you know, part of it is the keeping uh, investor-owned facilities in the system. Uh, we find that those are more costly and that they have a lower quality overall than than entities that don't have profit as a requirement. Other things are that we're concerned that the Sanders legislation may not be as comprehensive as the HR 676 Conyers uh, legislation. We would love to see long-term care included in that. That's something that people really struggle with in the United States, being able to afford the care that they need uh, long-term. You know, I think those are some of the kind of the main things other than getting into kind of wonky details about how things are financed or how they're budgeted. And a lot of that still needs to be worked out. So it's going to be a multi-year process. So I think that the important thing is that Senator Sanders is introducing Medicare for All legislation and that we'll have something that we can look at and then we're going to need to really push over the years to make sure that it's very strong. And after it's actually introduced, what are the prospects for the legislation? I know that given the makeup of the Congress, that the legislation may not go very far right now. What, what do you see as the path forward for it? Well, you know, we, we've never had any, you know, hope that, that the legislation would go forward without a very strong movement pushing it. You know, neither political party that's in power right now really has this uh, as something that they want to see. But what we're seeing is that the people want this, that the, the support for a national improved Medicare for all healthcare system is very high right now and people from all sorts of, of movements are coming together and seeing this as a very critical fight. And that's what actually has been so exciting because the Democrats were trying to take this messaging all year long around the Affordable Care Act and, and saying, well, let's fix the Affordable Care Act. And instead, people were saying, no, we want a single-payer health care system. We, we want what every other country has, what we're already paying for in this country. We, we don't want to keep having you know, private health insurance that makes it so difficult for us to get care. And so, um, so we just need to keep building on that momentum and people are doing that. You know, we have a record number of co-sponsors for HR 676 in the House, 117 co-sponsors. People are continuing to work to get more members of Congress onto that. They're pushing members who are already on the legislation to be more actively supporting it, speaking out about it, writing about it. And then uh, people will be mobilizing on the Senate side to push senators to support Medicare for all. And we absolutely need to make this litmus test in the next, you know, in the upcoming elections so that people who are running for office feel that they need to run on a platform that includes Medicare for all. And this is how we're going to build this momentum. We never know how close we are. Um, and it, it always seems the worst <laughs> right before we win. Um, but I think that we're in a really exciting moment right now where we do have the possibility in the next few years to achieve, you know, a real healthcare system. Yeah, you know, when you talk about momentum, it just makes me think of the statements I've heard from Nancy Pelosi, from Chuck Schumer, and the, the 
that whole wing of the DNC seems rather tone deaf on this issue. They sound so out of touch when they continue to talk about private insurance as if, I don't know, they're just not hearing the people. Yes, absolutely. This has been a problem for the Democratic Party. It's, it's very interesting that if you look at Democratic Party voters, they overwhelmingly want to see a single-payer health care system. But, you know, members of Congress are heavily influenced by the pharmaceutical lobbyists, the health insurance lobbyists, and so forth. It was really interesting yesterday before we met with Senator Sanders' staff, we were sitting in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee hearing on the Affordable Care Act. And the whole conversation was about how much more money of our, you know, public dollars we need to give to the private insurance companies to get them to cover people and pay for their health care. And if you step back and think about how ridiculous it is that we have to, you know, that we're really being extorted by these corporations to get as much of our public dollars as possible, you know, just to get them to do what they're supposed to be doing. And it, this is not any way to have a, a real workable system. It's why we have such an expensive and dysfunctional system in the United States. Yeah, right. So we're paying money to this, basically this middleman or this middle entity, and they're providing no care. You know, they're providing nothing. They're, ne they're providing nothing in the chain of care to like make me well or, you know, to provide services to anyone. It's just, they're just taking money and paying their investors. So I mean, the whole idea of insurance is that you know, when we all pay into an insurance plan, we know that, you know, everybody pays in and when you need, you know, the care that you get that care paid for. And that's, and we know that the more people that pay into the insurance plan, you know, the, the more security, security is, there is, the less it costs each of us, um, you know, to pay in to have enough money so that we can all get, get care. Healthcare is one of those things that, you know, it can be very expensive if you have a serious accident or a serious illness, and it's not the kind of thing that anybody, you know, any ordinary person can have that amount of money on hand to, to take care of themselves. So, so when we pay into a system and that system is there, that's the most efficient way to do it. What the insurance companies figured out, you know, decades ago was that, oh, they could get in the middle and make a profit. But how do they make that, that profit? They make it by charging premiums as high as they can get away with, by shifting as much of the cost onto people through copays and deductibles, and then denying or restricting payment for care. So their whole business model is to not pay for care. And so they really got in there and started kind of, you know, exploiting this system and profiting from it. And it's it's created a real a real mess for people. And so going to a single-payer system where you just need care, you call the, the doctor, you make an appointment, or you go to the hospital, whatever, that, per, that health professional then contacts the government system, says we delivered this care, their payment goes through. It's all about health. It's not about profit. And those systems right. work all around the world very well. And I, I think that's one of the, the things that always occurred to me about Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. You know, even though maybe many people advocating for it had good intentions. The idea that you're going to kind of create this, this, this thing that you feel is wonderful. I mean, I always, you know, compared it to like having a baby. If you're going to, you, you're not going to have a baby and then like turn it over to some pe people who don't have the baby's best interests at heart. <laughs> you know, you, you're know, you not going to, you're not going to turn over your, your wonderful creation and say, here, you guys who only care about profit, you take care of this for me, you know? It was really a last attempt to try to patch together the current system that we have. And, you know, they thought if they 
if they regulated insurances more, if they gave them more money, that they would cover more people and, and pay for care. And we've seen that they just they're insatiable, and it just doesn't work, and they, they need to be cut out of the system. For 100 years, we've been trying to avoid a national health insurance. We keep taking the path of what one of the historians calls more palatable approaches, and all of them have failed. So I think it's time for us to stop that strategy and just say we need a, we need a national health insurance. Okay, so what will you be watching for on Wednesday? I guess, uh, I guess you'll be there in the gallery or wherever watching what happens. Yeah, and it's, it's not as dramatic as that. Basically, the legislation will be introduced, and uh, it'll be available then on the Library of Congress uh, website for people to read the, the text of it. I think that Senator Sanders is doing some sort of announcement event on Wednesday, and then we'll be reading it. Uh, very closely and discussing it and putting out our analysis of it. But I think we'll be supportive of it. We just will know that we need to keep pushing uh, right. to make it the best legislation it can be. And so people will then be me meeting with their members uh, of the Senate and urging them to sponsor and support it. Uh, and so this is going to be an ongoing campaign where people are, you know, educating themselves about what this is, doing outreach to others around them, organizing events, meeting with their members of Congress, and we just need to keep building forward with this. Okay, so if our, our listeners, we have listeners here in D.C. and around the country, how can they be in touch with your organization? How can they plug in if they want to be a part of that movement to urge their representatives to co-sponsor? Sure, thank you. So they can go to our website, healthoverprofit.org, and uh, what we provide are resources and information for people. We have fact sheets that they can download and bring to their members of Congress. We have lists of Congress members who are supporting the legislation and who aren't. We also do educational calls every other week, national calls with speakers so that people can learn more and ask questions about this. And so um, I just urge people to go to healthoverprofit.org and sign up and you'll get put on our email list and we'll keep sending you information. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Margaret Flowers for joining me on the show today to talk about the latest in this very important issue, our health and our health not profit. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you very much. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Margaret Flowers and Gerald Horn, Nick Brana and John Chambers. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can reach our show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Averam. Keep raising your voice. Peace.
I'll give it right back to you. I wanted to do. 